0: While it's easy for an American to dismiss kings and queens as an extravagant vestige of the past, they've left a lasting mark in the sites we enjoy visiting in Europe today. To help us better understand the importance of royalty in European history, and as it applies to our sightseeing, we're joined by Ben Curtis. He teaches political science at Seattle University, and he's the author of The Habsburgs The History of a Dynasty. Ben, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, Rick. Ben, when you think about the power of a handful of big families in the 19th century, it's hard to imagine the impact they had on every bit of life. And then, after 1918, basically, it's all changed. Explain to us how a few royal families permeated life and then what happened in World War One.
1: Right. Think about it. In a couple of these states, in, like, the Habsburg monarchy in Central Europe, in the German Empire, and in Russia, you have families who have been building up their power there for centuries. Hundreds and hundreds of years, they've been founding churches, they've been founding schools, they've been creating bureaucracies, they've been actually creating government, creating armies, and then, 1918, they're wiped away. So, understand that these families had these incredibly long histories in these places, and really did shape economies, cultures, politics, and then, because of a few very fateful decisions, in 1914, they were gone.
0: Could you say World War One was caused by royal families refusing to modernize and then World War One actually ended the power of royal families? In many ways,
1: yes. If you look at, zoom right in on the conflict between the Habsburgs and between Serbia in June 1914, and one reason why Austria decided to declare war on Serbia after the Austrian heir to the throne, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, was assassinated in Sarajevo, is because the Habsburg emperor felt that the pride of his family would be hurt if they didn't actually respond militarily to that uh, provocation. So
0: any royal family worth their salt would not put up with that kind of a provocation. And then you have all this jockeying behind the scenes, and it's actually, what do they call it, the Nicky and the Villy letters going Mm -hmm. back and forth. Emperor Nicholas and Kaiser Wilhelm. Some of them are tied to the Habsburgs. And what was it, Nicholas was in Russia... Mm-hmm. The, uh, the Romanovs, exactly. Kaiser Wilhelm in Germany, yep. and then you got the Habsburgs. And the Habsburgs are getting their due respect from these Serbs that wanted a little more uh, autonomy. right And uh, the Habsburgs are going to teach them a lesson, but the Serbs are related to the Russian Slavs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so the Russians are mobilizing, and then the Germans are related, because they're Germanic, with the Habsburgs. Yep. And you got these frantic letters going back and forth between the emperors. Personal letters.
1: Exactly. And think about how there's not only just these couple big families that rule all of this, but they are so interconnected because Wilhelm II in Germany was a cousin of Nicholas II in Russia, and they were both cousins with George V, who was ruling the United Kingdom at the same time. So England is paying attention. Of course.
0: And then yeah. they get right up and it's like, Nikki, Villy, Nikki, don't do this. But Villy, right. I have to. But my cousin, but you our, crazy? our respect. Yeah. And, and then suddenly, Germany invades France. Mm-hmm. Now that's like what
1: yeah and why did it happen and a key aspect of why it happened in relation to this big royal families picture is because these kings and emperors still saw it as their prerogative they didn't have to think about whether war was going to be good for the the average joe on the street the peasants you know or the shopkeeper war was about them right war was about their family's prestige their family's power and so they weren't accountable to the average joe in the street And if they wanted to go to war, well, they could mobilize, they could do it. And that's really what happened is the Austrian emperor said, we're going to war. The German emperor said, we're backing them up and we're going to go on for Russia. And of course, the Russian Tsar, the most autocratic of all, he didn't have to listen to anybody and Russia could go to war for his family's own interests rather than the interests of everybody else.
0: And basically all of these royal families had millions of peasants that had to follow. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just, there was not a notion like today that you could say, well, wait a minute, this war seems illogical to me.
1: Yeah, but that's one reason why they start to crumble, then, as the wars go on, is because people get the idea, wait a second, they're leading us to ruin, right? Whatever stability and prosperity these monarchies may have once provided over the centuries, as World War I goes on, that thing that starts to disappear, and by 1917, 1918, people are saying, you know what, we don't need them anymore.
0: Maybe this is growing pains. Maybe you needed royalty to bring us out of the feudal chaos that followed the fall of Rome, just to give some sort of order and and stability. But then as Europe evolves, uh, you're not going to have people willingly give up power, and then they overreach, and you have them steamrolled by the modern age, 1918.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, you shouldn't look at uh, the royal families in Europe as totally things of the past or purely kind of nice little museums, because in a lot of countries, including Austria, Hungary, but even Spain to a certain extent, even Germany, certainly parts of Russia too, the state apparatus, that's to say the government... The fundaments of it were built by royal families, and it still persists today.
0: In a positive way.
1: In a positive way, yeah. yeah.
0: And in fact, I was at um, in the Pantheon in Rome, and there is the tomb of the first king of Italy right there from the 1880s or something, mm-hmm. and, and there's actually royalists that meet there, yeah. and they're scheming to bring back the king. I mean, it's kind of fringy, but there's actually people today that want to bring back the royalty.
1: Indeed, and there's still some kind of crazy members of royal families who think they should be in charge again.
0: You know I used to sleep in a funky bed and breakfast in London called the Ravnagora. Mm-hmm. And the Ravnagora is a rallying cry for the Serbs kind of like remember the Alamo. Right. Exactly. When their royalty was booted. Yeah. And the communists took over uh, the way I understand it. And the two bit king his descendant of Serbia who wanted to go back on the throne was holding court in the basement of this bed and breakfast in London called the Ravnagora. And he had these old Serbian guys with their long beards that would hang out there and scheme as if they actually had a hope to go back to the throne in, in Belgrade or yeah. whatever. It was fascinating that this still exists around Europe today.
1: And one of the crazy things, which I will admit to, in some ways, the monarchies that fell apart were better than what replaced them, and particularly after World War One, when you get the power vacuum in Central Europe, where you used to have the Habsburg monarchy, and then after that you get Czechoslovakia, you get a separate Hungary, you get a separate Austria, you get this new Yugoslavia thing, And many of those states succumb all too easily to fascism in the interwar period. And if there were, this is alternative history, but if there were still a strong monarchy there, then perhaps what happened in World War II would never have happened because you would have had somebody else to resist Hitler and Stalin.
0: And you could actually make that apply to today's headlines Mm -hmm. after the Arab Spring and so on, and and countries that used to have stability and then they weren't democratic. So popular uprisings threw out the reason for the stability and they couldn't handle their new democracy, and they fall into fragmentation and even worse governments.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, neither you nor I are really a monarchist, but the point of this conversation is to say, you know, monarchies weren't necessarily all bad, and they provided some things that some of the governments are not well, providing right now. maybe there's something
0: more fundamental than democracy called stability, and mm. maybe that's what monarchies provided back in an age when there would not have been stability. Exactly. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking monarchies and royal families in Europe with Ben Curtis. Ben's a professor of European history and politics at Seattle University. His book is called The Habsburgs, The History of a Dynasty. Our emails is radio at ricksteves.com, and uh, Tarlock from Perth in Australia has emailed us, and uh, Tarlock writes, I think we're now at a stage in the world where royals are a thing of the past. Yet that makes the past even more important as the history now becomes of much more value. Thus, we have to make sure that the tourism sector keeps that alive through education, as we are nothing without history. Well, that's interesting. So Tarlok's talking about we can learn from history, and as we sightsee, we can learn from the royals. He says they're a thing of the past. I guess the power of royal families is a thing of the past. Today you do have royal families throughout Europe, but they're generally constitutional monarchs, and they have a ceremonial post. You know, a lot of times I, I feel like I wish I had a president who could be the ceremonial guy without having to be the political guy, and that's one rationale for having a king of Norway, isn't it?
1: yeah exactly there you know whether it's the queen of the united kingdom or the king of norway they are conceived are supposed to be national unifiers right they are ceremonial they're supposed to stand above political divisions and represent the whole country in a kind of apolitical fashion and that's not a bad thing necessarily
0: i think a lot of scandinavians arguably the most modern and and practical and not burdened with the trappings of the past sort of ironically are the ones with royal families and a lot of them modern as they may be appreciate the value of a monarch in sweden or in denmark or in in norway ben you've made a life out of teaching and studying uh, about the royal families of europe when we think of all the great art collections they really are a function of the royal families talk to me about a few of your favorite sites that really we wouldn't have without royal families
1: think of many of the greatest museums in the world like the Prado, for example, in in Madrid, or the Louvre in Paris, or the the Hermitage in the Saint Hermitage, Petersburg. exactly in Saint Petersburg, the majority of those collections were established by royal families. So when you go see those incredible paintings and incredible sculpture, really, you can thank a king from centuries past in many times that that's there for paying the artist originally. In a lot of cases, yeah, for paying the artist to make it, or for collecting it, because a lot of these uh, kings and queens were greedy for the greatest art treasures of the world and they would go to great lengths. There's a story of one Habsburg emperor who loved a particular painting by Albrecht Dürer, right? so the great German Renaissance artist, and so he paid to have that painting transported upright over the alps all the way to prague in the late 1500s because he loved it so much and he wanted it there
0: a lot of times you find treasures of a long-gone civilization stored in the vatican or in the doge's uh, palace or something like this or in some treasury in the of the Habsburgs. local people say well yeah we looted it but had we not looted it it would have been destroyed today nothing exists from that culture they make a good case. I, yeah. mean, I mean, all that stuff that was looted from Istanbul, it survives because it's in some treasury in Europe.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's true, you know. You don't want to advocate looting, but when <laughs> you when you go to the hermitage in St. Petersburg, it's a great chance not only to see the art that the Romanovs collected for centuries, but also to get a little glimpse at the way they lived in the incredibly opulent rooms and think, well, yeah, we've moved on from that to the positive in many ways, but it is this great heritage that we can still appreciate.
0: Fascinating. Ben Curtis, thank you so much for giving us an insight into the importance of rural families in Europe and best wishes with your teaching. Thanks so much, Rick. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.